if I look like a military person, does that make me one? Well, I say that because of my haircut here. You can tell, being in this Navy area, maybe if I would walk around, people would say, wow, that guy just got back from boot camp or something. But seriously, if I look like a military person, does that make me one, yes or no? Now, hopefully all of the men, and if there's some women here that were in the military, you should firmly say no with a little smirk, right? Okay. So if I have a Navy haircut like this, does that make me in the military? No. Well, maybe this will help. If I would put on my father's dog tag, here it is. It says, <clears throat> i put it up right here, Cargus Lawson L. That's his name, and it's got all the data here and his blood type and he was a Lutheran. If I put this on, am I part of the Air Force now? Some of you are wondering. Maybe he is. No, I'm not. No. Okay, maybe this will help. Here is my grandfather's World War II jacket. This is the Ike version, they called it. And you'll soon see that I'm adopted because the family I was adopted into is very... They were kind of on the shorter side. And okay... If I look like a military person, I've got it all. I've got Navy, Air Force, Army. I can't button this thing. Does that may mean that I'm in the military? Yes or no? No. I mean, even if the kids were staying, if I can get this off now, even if the kids were in here, oh, they would laugh and say, no, of course not. You can put all that stuff on, and it does not make you a military person. No, of course, that'd be foolish. Just because someone looks like they're in the military does not make them one. So the question is, what makes you one? And correct me if I'm wrong, those of you who are in the military that either got drafted or signed up because you had nothing else to do or that's what you chose, here's what I wrote down. What makes you one? When you sign your life up legally and enlist. Some of you are like, yes. You make an oath to serve our country and do the task given to you. That's, that's what makes someone in the military. I have not signed my name. I have not enlisted. Then you can put this stuff on. You can don all that stuff, gather up all the clothing, and you can look the part. Just because someone looks like a Christian does not make them one. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Here's a great famous quote by Billy Sunday. If you've never heard of Billy Sunday, maybe look him up on YouTube. I don't even think they had videos. Back. Well, maybe it's just when they started making films. He was very energetic. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you an automobile. Just because you can look like a Christian does not make you one. Or the modern quote was this. Going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Going to church does not make you a Christian. So what makes you one? When we in faith believe that Jesus died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice, took our place, and his victorious resurrection that makes us legally right before God we make an oath to serve our master and follow him and I love this we don't do it he does it amen we don't make it he makes it for us once someone comes to the Lord, when someone finally says, I believe in you, I trust you, I give you my life, then, through faith by grace, then there is a profile. Then there is what Christ would describe, what one of his disciples would look like. After someone's a Christian, then there is a certain look that it may be. Turn to 2 Timothy. If you don't have your Bible, just put your hand up. We've got a couple Bibles in the back. Second Timothy. 
And again, the line that I've used often is this. And it's so hard for us to kind of get into because some of you are like myself. We are work task oriented. We want to get things done. And it's so easy to bring that into your relationship with God. We are not saved by works, but we're saved for works, to do works for Him. We're not saved by works. But listen to this. 2 Timothy 1, 9. He's talking about the Lord here. Who has saved us and called us to a holy life. We are saved, but we also are called to a holy life. There's a certain profile that we are to look like. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Because from the beginning and end, this book is all about grace. Amen? This is all about grace. And there's a certain profile that the Lord has for us. What we would look like. What would those who believe in Jesus look like? And we've been looking at John chapter 15. So turn to John 15. And we'll pray and we'll dig in the Word to see what it looks like to be one of His. Just as a military person, you can dress up all you want and say, I've got the haircut, I've got the jacket that fits. But you're not one. You're a pseudo-military man. What does it really mean to be a Christian? We're going to look at some great words that Christ states to his followers. This is what it looks like. So Lord, we come to you this morning. We ask that you would, again, move in our hearts. And Lord, forgive me as someone who's grown up in the church and, and I know the church lingo and I know what it looks like to be a Christian. I can fake it so well. But you cannot fake Christianity. So, oh Lord, I ask that you would awaken me so I can see the beauty of your words this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 15. John chapter 15, starting with verse 4. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown to the fire and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands, and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. We've been looking at some of these words. A disciple's life is one that remains, abides, dwells. Christ gives his call to us. Don't just be in a relationship with me. Dwell, abide. And the problem is some of us think that, well, our relationship with God can be this long-distance love affair. Currently, I have a friend who will be visiting us in a couple weeks. He has a long-distance love affair. He's in a relationship. And he's excited, but she's off in college, and he's working, and he's just... Can you imagine a marriage like that? Well, some of you in the Navy understand that for a brief amount of time. But that's not the way it's meant to be. We are to be dwelling in a relationship, abiding, he says. Remain. And in this passage, there's a couple things it says. Remain in Jesus. 
So daily we must decide to walk with him, follow him. It's not just on Sundays you clean up and go, okay, I got a haircut and cleaned up, I'm ready to go, I'll follow Jesus today, and then he kind of dwindled down. Daily awake. Think of Good Friday and think of Easter. Celebrate him and make a commitment to follow him. Remain in Jesus. Remain in the words of Jesus. And also remain in his love. We just read 9 through 13 are big on this. And it's interesting that love and remaining are so deeply intertwined in this passage. Remain, remain, but love. So a disciple's life is one that remains. Always remember that. Remain. Another one we've been looking at is a disciple's life is one that obeys. We love because we obey. I ran into that this morning with one of my daughters. I said, please do this, and she just ignored me, and she purposely was ignoring me. And I just said, if you loved me, you would obey me. And then she kind of realized, like, oh, yeah. It took her a while still. If we love, we would obey. The act of love is obedience. Think of that. The act of love is obedience. And all of this is based upon his good will. So we obey. And we do things according to his will. And it's marked in my actions. What I do, because I love him, I obey him, I follow his will, it shows in my actions. How I pray is not how I want it to be, it's how he wants it to be. I pray according to his will. I act according to his will. My hopes, all my relationships, all share and flow out of the mind and will of Christ. And I've asked you to read, take your hand again, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. These five chapters alone have so much wealth that if, not if I could, but if I got stuck on an island for a whole year and all I had were these five chapters, I would have so much to feast on that I might beg for another year with my family. Just so I could just fuel up on all that is here. Read these five chapters, and I ask you please, this week, pen out what are some of the things that he says, obey, follow me, here's my command. And I've been going through, personally, the New Testament, looking at the commands of Jesus. And maybe someday we'll look at my list. And so far I've come up with 35 profound commands that Christ says, this is what you are to do. It's in a huge contrast to what the world wants us to do. Obey Him. Just as love and remaining are so intertwined, so is love and obedience deeply intertwined. John 14, 15. Take a look at it. Just turn a page back. John 14, 15. If you love me, and hopefully most of you say, yes, I love the Lord. I love you, Jesus. If you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love him, you'll obey him. John 14, 15, John 14, 21, John 14, 23. It is when we obey, listen to this, it is when we obey Christ, we experience the depth of his love. You experience the depth of it. You can still experience his grace and his love, but when you obey him, you experience it in a deep, profound way. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Romans chapter 8. But when you obey him, you experience the beauty of it even more. But as we walk according to the Lord and his commands, we have special intimacy with him. So a disciple's life is marked with that that obeys. What does a Christian look like? He's one that remains. He's one that obeys. The third one, disciple, their life is one that bears fruit. Bears fruit. John 15, 8 and 16. Take a look at this. Look at verse 16. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to, what does it say? Go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. The fruit of this world does not last. The pseudo-hope that the world pawns out to you and says this will gratify you does not last. It may taste cute in a short moment, but like the watered-on coffee at the gas station, it dissipates so quickly. Christ says your fruit will last. And the two main ways is this. We are to have fruit that will be a witness, number one, and it has a certain ethic to it. It is good. Bear fruit. I was thinking about this. The modern term for bearing fruit would be maybe in an industry or if you're into economics or something. The modern term would be product. So bear with me here. It's almost as Jesus saying there will be a certain product you will have. You will look a certain way. If you're in the military, you'll have it like Pastor Cody's got really, really short. There's a certain product. Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. We have the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit is also found, listen to this, in the Great Commission. What's one of the main products? Turn to Matthew 28. I'm surprised I don't harp on this more. I don't dig into this more with you because this is foundational for what transformed my heart when I was in school studying the Word of God. Then Jesus came to them and said, Matthew 28, starting with verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In verse 19, they call this the Great Commission. You are called to go out this Great Commission. Therefore, go And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Again, you've heard me say this before. In this, we see four verbs in our English. Go, make, baptize, teach. But in the original language, the Greek, there's only one verb. The rest are participles, hanging words. There's only one verb. What's the main word? It's not go. The main word is make disciples. I believe one of the greatest ways to bear fruit is if you are making disciples. A church that's making disciples, that's the core thing. As you're going, make disciples. As you're baptizing people, make disciples. As you're teaching them the great word of God, make disciples. Bear fruit. Making disciples. It's a product. It multiplies. It's the nature of fruit. Fruit is not just to be made to be all shiny and cute and put wax on and put at Fred Meyer so you think that's the pretty apple. I'll eat that one. Fruit is primarily its main job is to multiply and that's what we as disciples are to multiply we are to vocalize the glory of god so others see that and then they'll be drawn to the lord and bring fame to his name so love and bearing fruit they're intertwined another word that we were looking at is a disciple's life is one that has joy Happiness, listen to this. Happiness comes and goes. How many of you can affirm that in your life? Happiness comes and goes. I'm still young, so some of you older people are saying, young boy, you'll soon realize more and more that happiness comes and goes. Happiness comes and goes, but listen, the deep-seated, pure joy of the Lord is that which is our strength and lasts. Amen? If, if life is just about being happy and just smiley, you're going you're gonna to find out it's not true. But the true, deep-seated joy, that my joy may be in you, he says, and your joy may be complete, that joy will last. As one wrote this, joy is a supernatural sense of well-being that comes from knowing that we are pleasing God. Even in sickness, 
poverty, horrible days, you can still have joy. You may not have happiness, but you can have joy. If you don't believe me, some of the books I handed out a couple weeks ago, look at some of the heroes of the faith, the martyrs. Read their stories, and you'll see that they didn't have happiness, but they had joy. Read the book of Acts. Look at Paul. He's in prison. Look at some of his letters. Ephesians, he has joy in that. Love and joy are so intertwined. In fact, go to John 15 again. Listen to this little section here. You'll hear love and joy, how it's together intertwined. 9 through 12. John 15, 9 through 12. As a father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Love and joy are deeply intertwined. And the last word we've been looking at is this word glory. A disciple's life should be marked with glory. Bearing fruit is for the glory of God. That's the whole purpose. Look at verse 8. This is to my Father's glory. This is for His praise, for the fame of His name, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. A disciple is one who bears fruit, who brings glory to the name of God. The main delight of Jesus, and this is what I've read, is I've read those five chapters. Those five chapters alone, this is what I've just, it's profound. The main delight of Jesus, he's going to the cross. He is about to die. The main delight of Jesus in this section is bringing glory to the Father. In fact, this week, do that. Read those five chapters and realize his main delight, his main joy is that this is for your glory, O Lord. And he knows what's about to come. And he prays that the disciples who are in union with Christ would do the same. Love and glory are deeply intertwined. But now we come to our last word. A disciple's life is one that loves. One that loves. So verse 12, take a look at verse 12. My command is this. This is his command. Build big churches. It doesn't say that, sorry. My command is this. Have many books of your doctrines and make them sound so good that everyone says that is the right way compared to the other churches. It doesn't say that. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a couple weeks. And I'm going to do them in order of the passage, although I probably should do it in the logical, theological order. This week we're going to look at what it means to love each other. Next week, it will be, as I have loved you. And it's interesting, as I've read these chapters over and over again here, these last couple weeks, I'm realizing there's this triangle. Not a love triangle, like some of you that like chick flicks. There's always this love triangle. Two guys like the girl, and who's it going to be? It's usually, she ends up with the ugly guy who's just, you know, whatever. But it's not that love triangle. But there is this pure love triangle that we see in these chapters. Jesus has love with the Father. Okay? That's there. Then there is Jesus has love with his disciples. Then there is we are to love others as they have loved us. The Father, the Son. There's this profound aspect. There's this relationship between Jesus and the Father, Jesus and us, and us and others. So here's a big question I have for you. Already you're ready for the Sunday school answer, so you may just blurt it out because we know this is the word of the day. 
But what would you say is the distinguishing mark of a Christian? What is the distinguishing mark of a Christian? Is it outward buildings? Well, I've been overseas. I've been to Asia, and I've been to some of the religious places they have. And they look very different than a Christian place would be. They smell different. They have these idols. I've seen the idols. I've been to the Philippines and seen idols there. I've been to Europe. I've been to South America, and I've been to churches where I realize, okay, what's the distinguishing mark of Christianity? Is it the buildings? Well, if you go overseas, there is a huge contrast. Until you get to America, I mean, some churches even meet in schools. Can you believe that? That's just, that's just crazy. That doesn't look like a church. What is the distinguishing mark of a Christian? Is it outward buildings? No. Is it doctrine? Doctrine is very important. Trust me, I love theology. In fact, last night at 1.44, I almost emailed Pastor John a quote. But I thought, maybe he's got one of those fancy super phones that beeps every time someone emails him or, you know, or someone's near the house, it will beep. And I thought, if I email him this late, it may wake him up, I better not. Because I was deeply immersed in this theological world. I'm like, this is great! It is true, what we believe sets us apart from all others. I don't think, though, that doctrine is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. Is it lifestyle? Ooh. Tell you what, there's some people in other religions that have a cleaner lifestyle than you do, right? Because they think it's all about doing and duty to attain some spiritual bliss or some type of heaven. So they have to live squeaky clean, but inside their heart is rancid. So it's not lifestyle. Is it dress style? Praise God, it's not. I'd be in trouble preaching in jeans today. What is the distinguishing mark of a Christian? It can be found in these five chapters you're reading. Turn to John chapter 13. John 13. Let me just start with this 31 here. Just so, there's so much here. I wish that we could just spend a weekend, of course, up in the mountains, and we could just study this. It's just so profound. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will make and will glorify him at once. John 13, 33. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me just as I told the Jews. So now I, I tell you now, where am I going? You cannot come. And here it comes, 34. Look at this. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, by love, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. There's a part of me that wishes, that wishes he would have said, by your doctrine people will know that you are Christians because I love studying theology, these big things. But it's not our doctrine. It's not our churches. It's not our buildings. It's not all that other stuff. It's love. Love is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. And we got a little slide here. Just get this in you. We are to love like Jesus. By this, they will know. By this, they will know. We cannot truly experience the love of Christ without loving one another. Did I just say something that may make you think, oh, is that true theologically? You cannot truly experience the love of Christ unless you love others. Because most of us think, oh, I just can experience God's love. I trust in him. He's my savior. Praise God. I'm done. Let's go on with life. No. These tie together. 
Love for God and Jesus demands obedience. And obedience includes this new commandment where Jesus says, love each other. And as my, I listened to my father-in-law a lot, especially when he said yes to getting my wife's hand. But in his commentary, in John, he says this, love in the community is necessary to the success of the Christian mission. Let me say that again. Think about this. Love in the community is necessary for the success of the Christian mission. We must love. We have to love. Love is the distinguishing mark, above all, of what a Christian is. And what I want to do is let's just look at a few passages. I'm just going to read these and that's it. I want this to soak in you. And my prayer this week is let these passages shake you. Matthew 22. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew 22. This is the great passage. Matthew 22. Starting with verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? In the law alone, there are 613 commandments. That's a lot of them. Most of you hopefully know the Ten Commandments. Which is the greatest Jesus replied, get this in you, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the first and greatest commandment. Look at me, love God. Number one, that's the number one thing you should be about. Love God. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look at verse 40. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. All of this, he just boils it down. Love God, love others. In fact, you can even look at the Ten Commandments and break them down. The first four are loving God. The last six are loving others. Love God. One of my heroes, as you know, is Jonathan Edwards. I was reading one of his big, lengthy writings. The title of it was 45 words. Just the title of his little sermonette. 45 words. You thought my sermons were long. That's just his title. And under this, part two, it says, the distinguishing mark of the true work of the Spirit of God. So basically he's saying, what truly do we know? Because at this time, revivals were happening, all these external manifestations were happening, and they were like, well, just because someone's dancing and happy, does that make them a Christian? How do we know that's really the Spirit of God moving? And some psychologist of the day wrote a famous writing, and a lot of people read it, and then Edward said, well, I need to respond to that. And one of his writings is distinguishing marks of the true work of the Spirit of God. Kind of like what we're doing. What, what truly does a Christian look like? His number one thing, his first one was this, when they have, he says, a raised esteem for Jesus. That's really kind of archaic words. He loves Jesus. The number one thing that marks a Christian, he's passionate about Jesus. He loves God. When the Spirit moves in our heart and awakens you to faith and repentance, your view of Jesus changes. See, most people respect Jesus that doesn't get you anywhere. I meet people all the time say, oh, I respect him. He was a good teacher. He's, you know, he's got some good stuff. Respecting Jesus does nothing. But you must revere him, exalt him, praise him. That changes everything. When he becomes your delight, you love him, that's what we're talking about. Love God, but if you love God, how many of you would say you love God? Yes? You must love others. This is where it gets hard. It would be nice if it was just doctrine. Then we could say yes to it, right? 
Sure, I believe that, good enough. But loving others, that's tough. Look at Galatians 5, 6. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision has any value. The things, listen, this is great. The only thing that counts is faith expressed itself through love. That's a profound verse. It's not just, oh, I believe in Jesus, that's good enough. Faith, the only thing that counts is faith expressed itself through love. We must love others. All right, let's look at some of these verses here. I'm just going to whip through some of these. Luke 6. We're gonna kinda, I'm going to go through here the way your Bible is mapped out here. Luke chapter 6. This is a great one. Which one is not great, right? Luke 6, 35. Love your enemies. How many bumpers do you see like that? <laughs> That's the last thing we see, right? Go home and make a bumper sticker. Get some duct tape and write it in white or something. Make it stick on your... Love your enemies. Wouldn't it be cool to send to our government? Well, that's a different story. Love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting getting anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the Most High. Because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Love your enemies. And I'm just going to call it right out here. It would be so easy for us to get on the airplane, go overseas, and there might be people who hate Americans, and we could try to love them. Here we go. This is the tough one. I encourage you, love the enemies in your family. Oh my. That's the hardest one to do. How many of you have people in your family that drive you a little nuts? Don't raise your hand, because some of you are related in here. We all have someone in our family where you just go, you've got to be kidding me. Please, Lord, have mercy. Love your enemies. That is the most distinguishing mark of a Christian love. Love your enemies. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we can start with verse 9. Again, Romans is written in such a way where chapters 1 through 11 are all truth statements. The verbs are indicative. It's, he's laying out this theological treatise of who Christ is. It's, it's by grace, not by works. It's, he is the, the only one that took your spot. Then chapter 12 to the end, all the verbs change. They're imperative commands. I do imperatives with my kids. Don't take the fork and put it in the light socket. Don't do that. These verbs are imperative. What we believe matches and should match our behavior. Verse 9, chapter 12. Love must be sincere. How many of you know people that say they love you, but it's not sincere, right? Wow. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Here it is again. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. What does it look like to be a Christian? Be devoted to one another in love. Honor each other. The next chapter, chapter 13, 8 and 9. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled 
the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covenant. Whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to your neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Again, the distinguishing mark of a Christian is love. Let's turn to the love chapter. Anybody know what that is? 1 Corinthians 13. How many of you had that read at your wedding? Anybody? There's, a, there's some hands. Love, th- chap- love chapter, chapter 13. Verse, eight, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Let me pause at that for some of you. Some of you are like these big processors. When people hurt you, you like to tally that in there and just remember that forever. Love takes that seed drive of wrongs and just doesn't erase it, but smashes it. Love keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hope, always perseveres. And verse 8, love never fails. Ephesians 4.2. Ephesians is laid out like Romans in many ways. The first couple of chapters are all, this is what we believe, this is some good truth statements. And then chapter 4 to 6, this is how you live it out. Right away he says this. Ephesians chapter 4. As a prisoner of the Lord then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. You know what it's like to have family visit you? After three days, it's about time they leave, right? Some of you like that, and I've heard the statement around here, Friends and family visiting you lasts as long as fish does in the refrigerator. After three days, it begins to stink, and it's time to get it out, right? Imagine if you were stuck with Pastor Cody for 30 days straight. Wow. This verse would have to be your theme. Because you would drive me nuts, and I would drive you nuts. Because we're so human, we're so about ourselves, but we are to bear with one another in love. Turn a couple pages over. Colossians. 3.14. Colossians 3.14. Let's start with 12. This is such a great passage. I encourage you, write this one down, keep it on a little note card, and think about these virtues. Think about these characteristics. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Love is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. Again, turn to a different passage. 1 Peter 4.8 1 Peter 4.7 As I look at the news, I may want to pause on verse 7 and let's talk about this more, but we'll get to the main part here. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Let me just say this on the side. 
I won't ask to raise your hand because it may embarrass you, but some of you are worried about the future of America. Rightfully so. Some of you are worried about the chaos in the Middle East right now. Some of you, that kind of gets you worried, right? Some of you kind of get a little anxious and you're like, what's really going to happen? Are you supposed to be worried and anxious? Look at what he says here. The end of all things is near. Therefore, freak out. Look at every conspiracy site and just go, ah! Therefore, hoard up and build up and hang out with Pastor Cody because he can provide and get a lot of food for you up in the mountains. No, it doesn't. That would be kind of fun. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded. Don't get sucked in into a bunch of stuff that's out there. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. We should be praying a lot this year. Above all, even more important than all that, love each other deeply. Deeply. Because love covers a multitude of sins. And he goes on, offer hospitality to one another. Here's it. Love is a distinguishing mark of a Christian. First John has it. We're going to be ending here soon. First John chapter 3. First John 3. First John 3, 16. Hopefully you took my advice and go through the whole Bible, all 66 books, and look at every 316. You'd be surprised at how cool they are. 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. This is love. Then turn to the next chapter. As a boy, I memorized this whole section, and it's so worth memorizing. 1 John chapter 4, starting with verse 7. Dear friends, love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves God has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not know God, who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. Verse 10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him, and he in God. And we also, we, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in Him. Look at verse 17. In this way, love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment, because in this world we are like Him. Famous verse, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. And the last one there, verse 21 and he has given us this commandment. Whoever loves God must also love one another. So church, it is no surprise that love stands as the first of the fruit of the Spirit. 
Love is the greatest in the love chapter. Now by faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest is what? Love. Because love is not a religion. Listen to this. Love is not a religion. It's a person, and that name is Jesus. Love is an action based on the sanctified state of your heart. You cannot love without Christ. Love is an action based on the sanctified state of your heart. And here it is. Love must not just be expressed. It must be experienced. Because we can, as a church, go, I love you, I love you, I love you. You can express it, but you fall short if that's all you do. Love must be experienced. Can you imagine being married to someone who only expresses their love and you never experience your love? Oh, horrible. That's not a marriage. That's torment. I love you, I love you, and that's all you get, but you never get to experience it? Too many churches are like that. Too many Christians are like that. Love must not just be expressed. It must be experienced. So four things. May our church, may our church be characterized by divine love. A place of healing, a place of prayer, a place of acceptance, and a place of worship. Second, may your occupation, what you do with your time, your job, your free time, your retired May your occupation be characterized by divine love. A place for healing, a place for prayer, a place for acceptance, and a place for worship. May your family be characterized by divine love. A place for healing, a place for prayer, a place for acceptance, and a place for worship. And the last one, may your life be characterized by divine love. So when people meet you, it's a place for healing, a place for prayer, a place for acceptance, and a place for worship. Because we are to love. Let's pray.